0: So now let us turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. Today we are in Genesis chapter 46. We'll begin in verse 27 and go through the end of chapter 47. We're still here in the uh, reconciliation and reuniting uh, between um, Joseph and his family. The brothers have gone back to Canaan after meeting Joseph and they are have, are packing up and are moving uh, to Egypt. And so today we pick up in Genesis chapter 46, beginning in verse 28, actually, not 27. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers, with their flocks and herds and everything they own, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They said to him, we have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, um, as Pharaoh had directed. And just as an aside before we go in, Ramesses is a later name. Uh, For the land of Goshen. So it's, it's the same area that they were talking about settling in before. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring all your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them, that, he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh." Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the From the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said, swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father above, we do thank you so much for this word. We thank you that in it we can see your glory. We thank you that in it we can see your majesty. We thank you that in this word we can see our salvation and how we may be changed. Lord, open our eyes today to see all of those things. Open our ears today so that we might hear You speak. And Lord, be with me as I attempt to bring a message from this passage to Your people. And fill me with Your Spirit and Your words, so that You might be honored and glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is it? What do you find difficult about your own personal pursuit of holiness? Of course, the question assumes that you are actively working toward the holiness that God calls us toward. But what do you find difficult in that pursuit? Maybe it's a sin that no matter how hard you work, always seems to find a way to to creep back into your life. Just about the time you think you've gotten a, a toe up on that particular sin, it, it it just finds a way to creep back in. Or maybe it's the temptation, the struggle against temptations that seem to be everywhere we look in our world. Or maybe it's the separation that comes with a pursuit of holiness. When we truly pursue holiness in our lives, it can separate us from our friends, from our families, from our co-workers. Maybe you've had that. That feeling where as you walk around the corner into the break room, conversation stops because you know that that churchy guy is coming in to the room. We've all had that feeling of separation that comes with a life of faith. And today we're going to look at how the Israelites were separated and how, in a way, that was a blessing. As we do that, we'll look through the joyful reunion that happens. We'll look at the fact that they were strangers in a strange land, excuse me, before that, in between the joyful reunion and the strangers in a strange land, we'll look at the promise keeping God as well. I can't read my own outline. So let us begin with the joyful reunion. So the family is packed up. Jacob has been convinced that Joseph is alive and Joseph is going to take care of them in Egypt so they, they will not... Um, will not starve to death and he packs everybody up in the, in the wagons that Joseph had sent along for that very purpose and they take off for the land of Egypt. When they get to the land of Egypt, Jacob sends his oldest son, Reuben, to, to spy out the land. No, he does not, does he? He sends his fourth oldest son, Judah. Remember, the three oldest sons had disqualified themselves from leadership within the family and Judah had shown himself through his willingness to stand in as a as a replacement for Benjamin when Benjamin was caught in the plot of Joseph to look like the thief of the cup. Judah showed himself mature and willing to put the best interest of the family before himself. And so he is now in a position of prominence and leadership in the family as they move to Egypt. And so Jacob sends him ahead and says, check out the land, get directions, lead us to where it is that we will find a place to live. Well, Joseph is excited to see his family, specifically his father, whom he hasn't seen in over 20 years. He is so excited, in fact, that we're told that he goes and he readies his own chariot, Now remember, he is the second most powerful man in Egypt. He has servants who would take care of these things. This would be like the President of the United States going out and jumping in the driver's seat of his limousine and cranking it up and driving somewhere on his own. He goes out there and he hitches the horses. He readies the chariot. He gets it out of the stables and he takes off to go and see his father. And what happens when he sees his father? Well, we're given that picture that we're given in the, in the, in the parable of the prodigal son where the father sees his son from a distance and he hikes up his, his robes and he goes out and he runs to meet him. Joseph sees his father and he runs to meet him. This would have been a a very undignified thing for Joseph to do. Important people don't run anywhere. They walk leisurely with their head up high, and in a very important and regal manner. He is a king. He does not run anywhere. And yet he hops off his chariot and he runs to meet his father. He and his father embrace, and we are told that they weep for a long time. This is a joyous reunion of a father and son, the, the favorite son there for a while who has matured out of his, out of his, out of his arrogant teenage nature to be a servant to the king, a servant to the nation, and ultimately a servant to his family as he provides well for them. The father who looked at this son as his favorite and has been whining about his death since Joseph has disappeared for the last 20 years. Saying that my head will be brought down to the grave because my son, my favorite son, has been taken from me. And and Jacob has matured as well. And these two men who are older, who have not seen in each other in so long, grasp one another in joy and in love. And they weep. And that makes me uncomfortable, Honestly. I'm not a person who is very much in touch with my emotions. I am not a type of person who oftentimes shares my emotions outwardly. And I think many of us are that way as well. The Egyptians were not that way. The Egyptians were the type of people who would have thought this was beneath them to show this level of joy, this level of tears in their emotions as they gathered together But we are created with emotions. We are people whom God has given the emotions of joy and sadness, of gratefulness and righteous indignation. And we struggle with those things, do we not? We've been called to sanctify our entire self, not just our actions, not just our words, not just our thoughts, but our emotions as well. One particular example, David Powlison in his book, Good and Angry, defines anger as our reaction when something is wrong and it matters. We have a tendency to get one or both of those things out of whack, out of adjustment. Sometimes things are wrong, but it matters far more than it does. Or sometimes things may be wrong and it doesn't matter at all. Jesus walked into a temple twice, the place where his father was to be worshipped, and he saw that the Pharisees, the religious rulers had set up a market to sell goods, to sell animals and to change money for the temple sacrifices and for the temple offerings, all of the things which were good. People traveled a long distance. They needed animals for sacrifice. They traveled a long distance with the money of the day that needed to be converted into the Hebrew money to be given in the temple. But the house of God was not a place for people to go about selling and buying, trading and bartering. It was a place of worship. All that place, all that stuff happened outside the city gates. And it mattered that it was wrong. And Jesus, in His righteous indignation, cleared the temple. You may not struggle with anger, but many of us struggle with different emotions that we try to express in a way that glorifies God. God calls us to use our emotions in ways that honors Him and glorifies Him, regardless of what the world around us thinks about it. But not only did we have a joyful reunion but we see the promise-keeping God in this passage as well. We see that God keeps His promise to Abraham that His descendants would dwell in Egypt for a time. And in chapter 15, God or Abraham uh, has this this face-to-face meeting with God, where God says, "Look, all of these things are going to happen. You're going to get the land." And Abraham says, yeah, but I'm still a stranger here in the land. I don't own any property here. I have to move my tents to, to take care of my sheep. And and I'm just a stranger here. And, and God says, well, you're not going to see the fulfillment of that. Your descendants will dwell in Egypt for a time. They will be there for 400 years. Where, well, they will be treated poorly. They will be treated as slaves. They will be oppressed. But I will bring them out and bring them back into the land when the sin of the Canaanites is complete. And we see the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy as the brothers of Joseph go before Pharaoh and say, we are just moving here for a time. We are here temporarily. We are not here to set up shop for a long, long time. We also see that God keeps His promise to Abraham and that He would bless those who bless Abraham's family. The lion's share of chapter 47 talks about the relationship between Joseph and Egypt and the people of Egypt as the famine goes on throughout its time. After a while, they run out of money. They come to Joseph to buy food. And after a time, they run out of money. So they come to Joseph and say, hey, we're not going to lie to you. We're out of money, but we still need food. And so Joseph, Joseph says, do you have livestock? And they say, absolutely. So he says, bring me your livestock. And they come to Joseph the following year, and we're, we're getting nearer the end of the famine here. And they say, we're out of livestock. All we have left is our land and ourselves. So take both. Now, it's important for us to remember here that the slavery of the Old Testament time was not the same as the slavery that we're familiar with in America from 150 years ago, the Atlantic slave trade. Um, It was like an indentured servant or an employee-employer relationship oftentimes. Now, people are sinful. People will will abuse relationships like that that are set up. But for the most part, um, many people willingly would sell themselves into servitude because it was easier to be somebody's servant. It was more secure to be somebody's servant than it was to have the freedom of being in business for yourself, of being responsible to provide for yourself. And so they they come to Joseph and they say, take our land, take ourselves. And Joseph takes them up on the deal. And we know that we're coming to the end of the famine because he says, I will give you not only food, but seed. And when you plant this seed and when you harvest your crop, the payment for using Pharaoh's land is that you will give 20 percent of your crop. You will keep 80 percent of it for your food and for your seed for next year but you will give 20% of that produce to Pharaoh. And and Moses tells us as he writes it that even at the time he was writing it, that was still a rule there in Egypt. Pharaoh owned all of the land except for the land that belonged to the priests, and 20% of the produce of the land went into Pharaoh's coffers. Whoever blesses you, I will bless, was what God said to Abraham. And Pharaoh gives the family of Abraham the best land In Egypt, and God grows Pharaoh's wealth. God grows the amount and the things that Pharaoh owns because he has blessed the people, the family of Jacob. And actually, if we were to go on after this into the book of Exodus, we'll see that a Pharaoh raises up that enslaves the people of God. And he is wiped out, has everything taken from him through the plagues and through the destruction of His army in the Red Sea. God is a promise-keeping God. When God says He will do something, you can be assured that it will happen. When He says, I will never leave you or forsake you, you can be assured that His Word is true and trustworthy. God is a God who keeps His promises. I think the most important thing that we can see is today in today's passage is this idea of the strangers in a strange land. The first thing that we see about Joseph and his family and their separation from the land of Egypt, we see that Joseph intentionally seeking to separate them in the way he presents his brothers to Pharaoh. He works with his brothers to get their stories straight. He said, remember, tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds. Shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians and, and he will do his best to keep you separated from them. In verse 32, he says to tell, tells his brothers to tell Pharaoh that, that they have everything that they need to sustain themselves. They're not there to take the wealth of Egypt. They're not there to take more than the food that they can provide there in Egypt. They have everything that they need to sustain themselves. Joseph only takes a small number of his brothers with, Pharaoh, to Pharaoh with him. He doesn't take the whole family so that Pharaoh is not worried that, my goodness, I've got to provide for this large group of people. He tells them that they have only come to live there for a while in chapter 47, verse 4. And Joseph and his brothers do all of this to make sure that Pharaoh knows that they're not a threat and they don't plan to be there long. In fact, the word translated in verse 4, live there a while, is the same word that God tells Abraham, your family will be in Egypt for only a little while. And it's the idea that we see in 1 Peter of strangers and aliens and pilgrims. We see the idea of separation in the way that Jacob comes before Pharaoh as well. You know, Jacob goes before a king. Joseph's brothers came before the second in command in Egypt. And what did they do every time? They bowed before Joseph. What did Jacob not do? Or at least it's not recorded for us that he did. It's never recorded that he bowed before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. In fact, we see the separation between Joseph and Pharaoh in the fact, or Jacob and Pharaoh in the fact that Jacob blesses Pharaoh twice. A servant doesn't bless his master. It's the other way around. The more prominent person blesses the least less prominent person. We see the separation as well in the fact that Jacob and his family live in independence and at a distance from Pharaoh. Now, while while the Egyptians are giving their money, their land, their own bodies to Pharaoh as payment for grain and seed, Jacob and his family remain independent in Goshen. They are a separate people living in the land of Egypt. They will only be made servants and slaves when they are forced to be made slaves at a later date. And finally, we see the separation in Jacob's making Joseph promise to bury him in Canaan in the family cave at Machpelah that Abraham bought from the Hittites. And if we take all of these things together, we see the focus in this passage is that Jacob's family will not become Egyptians. They will live separately. They will be detested for a time. And yet they will keep their identity. Why do you think God did not provide for them in Canaan and move them to Egypt instead? What happened to several sons and and grandsons and great-grandsons of Abraham in the land of Canaan? They married into the Canaanite tribes. And they were tempted to become like the Canaanites. They were hated. They were detested in Egypt. And that kept them separate. That kept them apart from the world. They were not going to intermarry and be assimilated into Egyptian culture. God works through this separation to make sure that they remain strangers and aliens in the land. I referenced first Peter just a few moments ago. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to First Peter chapter one. Peter has told his his audience that they are to prepare their minds, to be self-controlled, to do all these things to get ready for something. And they're get to, to get ready for this, beginning in first Peter chapter one, verse seventeen. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him, and so your faith and hope are in God. To work a little bit backwards through this, Peter makes the point. He says, each and every one of us that call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord, we have been brought with a price. We were slaves to our sinful nature. We talk about free will oftentimes and our ability to choose. Peter, Paul, John, all the authors of the New Testament say you don't have freedom to choose. You are a slave to your sinful passions. You are a slave to your sinful nature and you have to be purchased out of slavery. But you can't be purchased with silver. You can't be purchased with gold. The price is far more valuable. You are purchased with the blood and the life that Jesus gave on the cross Your freedom from slavery to sin was purchased by Christ's death, was purchased by Christ, by your judgment falling upon Christ. And he says, because of that, act like strangers, live like aliens. We do not belong to this world. We have been bought with a price. We owe this world nothing. We owe this world no allegiance. We owe this world no power. We owe this world not one iota of our life. We don't need their respect. Because we are citizens of a far better country, a far better kingdom, a city whose foundations are in God. We can bless this world. We can make this world better. But ultimately, we are pilgrims passing through, keeping our independence through holiness. And sometimes when the world detests us and says we want nothing to do with you because of the holiness you pursue, that is a grace. Because it keeps us from being tempted to compromise with the world that hates us. It keeps us. From being tempted to assimilate into a world that wants nothing to do with the holiness that we pursue. Sometimes the hardest part of our holiness is the fact that it makes us different and separates us from the world. But that may be a grace. That may be a step to make our walk in our pursuit of holiness easier. And it may be a way in which God is protecting us from stumbling into sin. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for this reminder. That when the world, when the culture around us hates us, that that may be a grace from you. Lord, help us do seek our hearts to make sure that we're not doing something uh, that is offensive But it is the gospel working in us that is offensive to the world around us. And help us to remember that you're a God who keeps his promises. You are a God who will strengthen and sustain us even when the world turns against us. I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.